so we are in this uh, wonderful letter um, of uh, 1 Timothy, uh, the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, the first one, uh, to instruct Timothy on instructing the church. Uh, and this letter, as it has unfolded, uh, we have watched in its sort of larger uh, makeup, we've watched a particular sequence happen, like you often do in any writing of a letter from a person to another person. Uh, Paul started this letter uh, in chapter 1, uh, that very personal sort of instruction or rather perhaps even charge to Timothy, right? Uh, chapter one was not about the church in Ephesus. It was to Timothy to say, Timothy, uh, buckle up. I need you to do this thing. Be brave. Remember who you are and remember that I am in part some of the authority behind your authority as Jesus is the authority behind us because he is calling you, calling us to call this church back from where it has gotten lost. Uh, remember the church in Ephesus uh, had been infiltrated by some teachers of prominence and they were teaching falsely the truths of God. Uh, they were teaching uh, things that were speculation out of Genesis and all sorts of things that were diminishing and even violating the gospel. And they were doing it for their own personal gain. Uh, articulate teachers that were charging uh, lots of money for you to be able to listen to their wisdom. And so they now not only are people seeking their own gain to gain more so that they might be elevated and doing it even by teaching falsely, but they've now discipled a congregation by the very nature of their actions and their teaching to begin to think in the same way. So this calling to the church uh, that is about to be done by Timothy, the charge, if you will, that Paul said he's giving to Timothy and Timothy to the church is for the sake of love. Uh, and it is going to be the right kind of love when the behaviors of the church reflect the principles of the kingdom of God, right? Reflect the heart of God. When we behave in a way that reflects the kingdom of God and reflects the principles of God, then we are rightly living our lives. The point isn't good behavior. The point is you are either representing the kingdom of this world and its principles, its philosophies, its realities, or you are representing the kingdom of God, its principles, its truths, realities, and its philosophies. And so this is where it began. Chapter one, to Timothy. Chapter two and three were then the first set of instruction to the church. Chapters four and five and a portion of six, the second set of instructions to the church, to Timothy to give to the church. And then chapter six, a portion of that comes back to where chapter one was. It, it gravitates back to Timothy. And it's sort of saying to Timothy, like you do when you're giving a speech to a person or team that's about to go and do something hard, you kind of start with some inspiration. You can do this. You can do this. And then when you're done with what you need to go out there and do, you end with what? You can do this. You can do this. And that is how this book has played out. And we have entered the you can do this on the end of this, right? It is not void of some of the instruction for the church, but it is personally now more about Timothy than it is about the church. Are you with me so far? 
the other beautiful thing that the Spirit of God has done through Paul in this letter uh, to actually shape the reality and foundation of this letter is that sequentially through the letter at certain junctures, Paul added a poem about God, about his redemptive work, his character, his kingdom, his wonder. And he did it at very particular points. At the end of chapter one, he, he wrote a poem about Jesus that bubbled up out of him. And, and what is he doing here? He's saying to Timothy, this thing I'm calling you to, this hard work, this fight that you're going to have to have, why are we doing this? Yes, the aim is love, but ultimately, why are we doing this? Because Jesus is king and we belong to his kingdom right? So there's this reminder, remember, why we do what we do is for, that was, that was good, I sort of did this, sort of, you know, like uh, up there, so we'll try that again. Everything we do, the why that we do, everything we do is for, is for God, is for God, that's right, for, for his glory and for his kingdom to be made known, to, to come to earth, right? And, and then out of this thing, it's not just why we do it, but it's also how we do it. If you or I try and behave rightly out of something within ourselves as a means to prove to God that we are worthy, one, it proves nothing about our worth. Two, it cannot be sustained. So what Paul is constantly reminding us of is that if our godliness is out of self-righteousness, it's not godliness. Godliness is not just right behavior. Godliness is a view that a person has of God and out of that awe and trust in the right view of God, a set of behaviors is the fruit because when you believe something, you will behave accordingly. That's why we've said all along, your behaviors betray your beliefs, don't they? They say to you, you say you believe this, but look at how you're behaving. Perhaps you should examine whether you really believe that or not. And so the beauty of this call is that we are called into godliness out of response to what we know of Jesus. And so then he goes into chapter two and three. And at the end of chapter three, remember, he says, he's back on godliness again. And he says, this thing, godliness is a mystery, isn't it? Like it's a mystery. It's not just a simple thing like just behave rightly and you're godly. It is this beautiful collision of what we know and trust and believe about Jesus and then how that knowing, trusting and believing results in a fruit of right behavior that is born out of us because of him, by him, instead of out of us, because of us, by us, for him. Woo! And it's a mystery. And then there he sings another poem. And he writes about Jesus and who he is and his redemptive work. And what is he doing there again? As we re-enter in, what are we in the pursuit of? Godliness. Why? Because godliness is of great benefit to whom? Of great benefit to the church, great benefit to the kingdom of God, great benefit to the world as they watch the kingdom come. And we found out last week, great benefit to the person who is engaged in godliness. Godliness is of great benefit. It is the more we should pursue. And so he says, but remember, godliness will only be sustainable and only be authentic when it is out of a right view of Jesus, in awe of Jesus, in response to Jesus. 
then the behaviors will be right, but because of Jesus. And then he moves from there uh, into another section, chapters four and five and a portion of six, uh, about godliness again. Uh, He does it in all sorts of ways. Leaders, you should be godly is is the answer. Leaders, you should be godly because when you're godly, it benefits the saints. It benefits the church and it benefits the kingdom of God. And saints, you should be godly because it benefits the leaders and it benefits the other saints and it benefits the world and it benefits the kingdom of God. So leaders should be godly. Saints should be godly. We should be godly, collectively godly, because godliness is a great benefit to all and brings about the kingdom of God here. And remember throughout this whole letter, what is he constantly saying? Our call as a church, our call as followers of Jesus is to represent the kingdom of God on planet earth and to represent the person of God on planet earth and to make the kingdom of God and the person of God known. We are here for the glory of Christ and we live our lives to that end. And so whatever was our pursuit previous to knowing Jesus, everything has now changed. And there is within this book, the constant recognition that that doesn't just happen overnight and is not easy. It takes a fight. It takes a work. It takes a consciousness. It takes a fixing of eyes. It takes a setting of minds. It takes a working together. It takes a a constant reality of rebuking each other and honoring each other when we are either missing the mark or hitting the mark. It is not a rebuke for rebuke's sake. It is a rebuke for the sake of the kingdom of God and the collective to make God known, right? So we've seen all of this unfold and it's been beautiful. And then the most recent part we were in last week when Brady got up here and had slides and outlines and things and you all are even sad today that he's not back. I get it. I'm with you. I feel the same way. I sat there at the 1117 and thought, this is wonderful. And I almost brought some slides, but I'm just not at that capacity yet. And so I was like, I'm just going to mess that up. I'm not good at that. And so... Brady unpacked for us so beautifully uh, this section that we traveled through last week to say all of us before we know Jesus and in many ways often after we know Jesus, but before we know Jesus as as a bent pursues more, more of something. I don't know what your more is, but it's something. If I can just have more of this and more more of that, more love, more relationship, more money, more security, more stuff, more this, whatever the more is, we are in the pursuit of more because more equals gain, right? Makes sense, doesn't it? The more you have, the more you've gained. But what Paul does so masterfully, empowered by the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, is to say, on planet Earth, more is gain. But as it relates to the kingdom of God, because what you are gaining is more of planet Earth, that gain is loss. That gain is loss. The more you pursue and the more you desire that is on this planet and of this planet, the more you lose. Because what you lose is godliness and what you lose is contentment. Contentment is by definition not able to exist if more drives us. You with me? So the second I am not driven by more, I begin the journey into being content. What a thing. 
And he says, contentment is realized when godliness is our pursuit. And godliness that comes from a pursuit of Jesus. So godliness is gain. Contentment is gain when more is our loss. <laughs> that was last week. And now, with all that set up, Paul enters into a conversation with Timothy that moves from you all, you all do this, to, hey, Timothy, considering all this, then make sure you remember this. And in so doing also, through this letter, kind of looks at each of us now, right? Kind of says, as though he's pausing and saying, now, now you, and, and, and you, and, and you, Renault, and you, let's have a conversation. Considering this, you do this. Let's go take a look at what unfolds. This is where it gets awesome. So first, first Timothy uh, chapter six, verse 11 is where we enter into um, at this point. And, and look what he says in first Timothy chapter six, verse 11. Uh, he says this, but as for you, O man of God, right? So you see this, this transition from uh, they do these things you all try to do these things. The whole passage before was an outline unpacking of what ungodliness looks like, what the pursuit of more looks like, what happens when the pursuit of more is in play. And now he's literally reversing that and saying, that's one way to live. But you, oh man of God, you do not live that way. Don't do it. Don't do it. I think I've convinced you, but don't do it. What should you instead do in contrast to what I just said is the pursuit of more and the abandonment of godliness and contentment? What should you do? Flee these things. So there's this first statement. Part of our journey in following Jesus is not just pursuing the things of Jesus, but in a consciousness, fleeing the things of the world. Let me just say that again. Uh, a part of our journey in following Jesus is being conscious of what we're pursuing, but also paying attention to what we are abandoning. Why? Because often what gets a hold of our hearts, what entangles us, the sin that so easily entangles, often entangles us when we are unaware of the fleeing of it. It's just kind of around. If you and I are not paying attention to where our hearts and minds are buying into the philosophies of this world, because we don't even know what those philosophies are, then we are going to be entangled in them. It is important for us to pay attention in the culture in which we live, both the global culture and the present culture, in this case, the Western or American culture, and ask ourselves what things of that culture are present in the church or in the world that feel like God, but are not. Do I know what those are? Do I know what to flee from? The obvious ones, right? Sexual immorality and uh, stealing. And, but but the, the, he was talking in there about much deeper things. For example, the pursuit of more. The pursuit of more almost sounds like an American like foundation, doesn't it? Success is more. So to be successful, pursue more. And the more you have, the more we will celebrate you. We celebrate the leaders, the people, the stuff who have the most, right? 
And there it is. Oh, there it is. What seems to be right is perhaps not a pursuit worthy of those who know Jesus. It is important that we know what they are and it is important that we are actively in the pursuit of fleeing them. That we in our hearts say, am I finding in my heart the desires for more that I'm then pursuing? They'll always be there on some level, but am I fleeing them or pursuing them? So he starts by saying, oh no, you, oh man, flee these things. And then he says, pursue other things. So our journey following Jesus is an active pursuit of fleeing what is unhelpful and what is deadly and pursuing what is helpful and what is life-giving. You with me? What an interesting thing that our call of God is to both flee and pursue. Why? Because that which we're fleeing is chasing us and that which we're pursuing is waiting for us. And so we must be like, run from it and chase after it. This is our great privilege to be participants in the gospel. And then he says this, what should we be pursuing? And he, he almost mirror images what he did in the previous passage in the opposite end. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. This is not an exhaustive list. It is what Paul often does. He doesn't have time to write every single reality of godliness. He gives us a taste and he says, you know what I'm talking about, right? These things, things like the fruit of the spirits, things like the things that are good. It's because sometimes we're like, well, exactly what is it? And he's like, come on. You generally know now you've read the whole letter. You've practically read the whole Bible. Most of us, some of us, one of us. Um, so he's like, just these kinds of things. And, and then he says this, fight the good fight of faith. Fascinating language, isn't it? And, and, and we should pay attention to this because, because it is Paul, again, reminding Timothy and reminding us that we should have an expectation of what it is going to feel like while on this planet to pursue godliness and to chase after contentment and to flee from more, right? He's like, if you are hopeful that you're just going to make that decision and then go, I will no longer pursue more. I am going to pursue godliness because I know better now. And then tomorrow you're going to wake up and from now on, it's going to be a cakewalk. You are in trouble. We live on planet death and death is in pursuit of us. Even though it cannot hold us any longer, it will not have us for eternity. It is still pursuing the bits that it can and it will, it will come for us. Sin will come for us. It will entangle us. It will chase us. It will bring us down. Uh, we have an active enemy of God who is uh, in many ways a personhood as well. Uh, the enemy of God is in pursuit with his demonic horde to, to cause death for us. And, and so there is just the sense of, you understand, right? that this is gonna require a fight. So if you wake up in the morning or you go to bed at night and you feel like you are battle-worn, and it was hard to, to measure your heart. It was hard to find where your heart pursued more today. It was discouraging when you were like, oh, that was, that was harder than I thought. I think I pursued more a lot. If, if you go to bed and you think the other Christians must be going to bed and going, that oh, was a cakewalk for me. What Paul's saying is it's cakewalk for no one that is pursuing God. Why? Because we are people who belong to one kingdom, but live in another. 
and we live in another because we are on mission here. And this kingdom opposes that kingdom. So we will always, every day, in some way, be at war with our own flesh, with the other humans, with the world, uh, with the demonic hordes. There is a war. And if we are going to be a people that say this matters, representing the kingdom matters, representing the glory of God matters. And I want to gain from godliness and gain from contentment and be an asset to the gain of others. Then you and I are going to have to rise up and get ready for a fight. And that fight is going to be a fight that will be part of your and my story as a follower of Jesus until we take our last breath. And at that day, the fight ends because we enter the kingdom of God in our personhood and being, and we no longer will have to fight there. But here we do what? We fight. We fight. So Paul's like, hey, Timothy. Hey, Timothy. Hey, you. Hey, Renault. Rise up and fight. And, and understand each day it's a fight, which means it's going to feel like a, like a fight. That's right. It's going to feel like a fight. And then, and then here uh, is that beautiful beginning of the reason that this is a good fight, a worthy fight, a necessary fight, if you are a follower of Jesus. He says, listen, man, we, we fight this good fight of faith because we are taking hold of the eternal life to which we were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So here he is saying two things now that become beautiful. He's saying, why are we fighting for this? Is it primarily because godliness and contentment is gained for us? No, it's not primarily that. Because in a strange way, if the only reason we are pursuing godliness and contentment is because we've discovered that's the more that's more, then we're still in a little strange way in the pursuit of, of more. It's a much better more, don't get me wrong. But, but, but we don't pursue godliness and pursue contentment only for our sake. We know that it's going to be benefit to our heart. We know it's going to be benefit to our soul. We know it's going to bring uh, life and peace and wonder. But the reason we pursue godliness, which has been this whole letter, is because we now represent a kingdom on this planet in this kingdom. And the kingdom we represent is the kingdom of God and that is the kingdom of eternity. So he says, remember Timothy, remember you all here, each individual one. What is your purpose after coming to know Jesus? To represent his kingdom and make him known. So take a hold of that. Take a hold of the kingdom of God. Set your eyes on the kingdom of God. Set your hearts on the kingdom of God. Remember which kingdom you belong to. And more than that, listen to this, it's so crazy. He's not just saying, remember, there's a kingdom coming that you're gonna be part of. So remember that kingdom and then live here as though you already belong to that kingdom. He's saying, you do already belong to that kingdom. You are already part of that kingdom. You're just here. Jesus, when he was on this planet, uh, he was praying a prayer uh, that was recorded in the book of John. And, and this is what he prayed. Listen to this. John chapter 17, verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him, that's Jesus, he's speaking of himself, authority over all flesh, 
to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So just what a wondrous thing that Jesus himself declares in this prayer that our eternal life is when? It's now. Yes, we do not yet experience the full expression of that eternal life actually entering into and living in the kingdom of God. But in some way, we live in the kingdom of God in this little bubble in which I sit. I am on planet earth in a war, but I am full of the spirit of God. I am a child of God, belonging to God, part of the kingdom of God. And my eternal life is as much about the location or dimension of kingdom I'm in as much as it is about the person to whom I belong. This is eternal life that you belong to Jesus. This is eternal life that you know him. This is eternal life that you live for him here and in eternity. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy is grab a hold of the kingdom to which you belong and live in it, live by it, live for it, live with it. Because this is your call. So you see, you said that grab a hold of of eternal life to which you were called and to which you've now said to the others who have grabbed hold of this kingdom, I'm with you, you're with me. So it's this beautiful, like, do it together. Remember, you all said that you're in and you made public confession. So when you're feeling a little disrupted internally or a little doubtful internally, which, uh, uh, internally, which you will, because this is a fight, remember... Remember what you did when you publicly confessed. Remember what the others did when they publicly confessed. This isn't just a secret in your heart. You guys got together and said, you follow Jesus? Yep, me too. Let's go do it together. Grab a hold of the eternal kingdom to which you were called, are called, and are called to represent. And remember, you're doing it together. You've made public confession. And then he says this. First Timothy chapter six, hold, hold, hold. Whew. Don't want to read wrong. He says this, okay, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So uh, it would take us 15 minutes to unpack that little sentence of Jesus making good confession in front of Pontius Pilate. And it's interesting and it's wonderful, but it is not as necessary in this place because the point Paul is trying to make to Timothy is not, let's unpack what it means that Jesus made confession before Pontius Pilate. He is simply using a moment in the life of Jesus where there was a confession made about who he is and Jesus nodded his head and said, yep, that. So you remember in the exchange between Pontius Pilate and Jesus at his trial, Pontius Pilate is saying things to him. Jesus is silent. And then he says, it is as you said. So what he's simply saying is, we are not the only ones that made a public confession of the kingdom of God and of the king of kings and who we follow. The king of kings himself who was on this planet didn't keep it secret and made public confession in multiple times. Remember this one? And this one was very public. And so what is he beginning to do here again, which sets us up for where he's going, right? He's saying, If you're going to do this, if you're going to fight the good fight, if you're going to pursue godliness and contentment and not more, if you're going to grab a hold of the eternal kingdom, if you're going to live in this way, 
Who do you need to fix your eyes on? Jesus, who do you need to follow? Jesus, who do you need to be like? Jesus, if there's something you did that you're called to and you kind of get a little wobbly, look to Jesus, he did the same thing. Jesus made public confession. Jesus took a hold of the eternal kingdom. Well, (laughs) more than took a hold of it, he brought it to us. Jesus has done what we are called to do. Remember Paul, when he wrote in the book of Philippians, and he says, man, let let your attitudes be the same as that of Jesus. Who did what? And then he went into all the what? If I'm asking you to lay down your prerogatives for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of others, don't worry, he already did. If I'm asking you to fight this way, he already did. If I'm asking you to pursue this, he already did. If I'm asking you to represent the kingdom, he already did. In fact, he is the kingdom, so anything he did, do that. And so he's saying, remember, I'm asking you to take a hold of the eternal kingdom, represent the kingdom of God, do all of this, because he already did. And then look what he says here. To keep the command unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting word, doesn't say commands, right? We sometimes read this and we're like, to keep all the commands, and we're back in legalism potentially, back in know them all, it's about behavior. But what is the command? Fascinating. Think about the book of Timothy. The, The aim of our charge is love and our behavior that is godly is for the sake of the right kind of love. Jesus has asked earlier on when he was on the planet, what would you say is the greatest command? And he doesn't actually say this is the greatest command. He actually says the command I'm about to give you, all the other commands hang on this one. When you fulfill this one, you fulfill how many of the others? All because to fulfill this one will require the fulfillment of many of the others. If I steal from you, I'm not loving you, right? So if I love you, I won't steal from you. And then and on and on it goes. And so he said, the greatest command is this, love God with how much of yourself? All of yourself, pursue him and love others like you love yourself and like you love God, right? And he didn't separate them. The greatest command is love God and with it love others because you cannot hate others and love God. And so what does he say here? All of this, remember Timothy, all of this, remember Renault, all of this, remember you all, is to fulfill the command and keep it from reproach. Our godliness is to love well to represent the kingdom of God, to bring about the glory of God so that we might be who we were called to be and who we have publicly confessed we are. Wow! And then he says this. He, verse 15, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who only has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And there's the poem, the third poem. And where does it sit? At the end of a call to godliness again, at the end of a call to pursuit the things of the kingdom of God and flee the things of this world. And what does he say again? You will not be able to do it sustainably or even properly unless you're doing it because your eyes are fixed on Jesus. And so here it is, folks. Here's where it all comes together in this little section. 
if you and I are going to be a people that are going to be of benefit to each other and to the world and to the kingdom of God and even experience benefit, we should pursue godliness and contentment by fleeing the desire for more of other things. You with me? And that will produce gain for ourselves, gain for the community of God, gain for the kingdom of God, gain for the world. Number one, pursue it because godliness is gain and more is loss. Second, pursue it because we represent the eternal kingdom, take hold of it. Remember, all of this is because of our call to represent the kingdom of God. This is not about your well-being, not about my well-being, though we will be benefactors of well-being because of the pursuit of godliness. It is about the, the beauty of the kingdom of God and bringing it to planet earth, and we are his body doing it. So do it because it's gain. Do it because you're called to represent the kingdom and do it for the glory of your king. Because at the end of the day, it isn't even as important that we represent the kingdom or gain. It is all for a singularity. Who is the king of kings? Who is the Lord of lords? Who is the sovereign? Who is the only eternal? Who resides in light unseeable? Who is beyond us? Who do we belong to? Who do we represent? Who do we glorify? This is your king, follow him. This is your king, live for him. This is your king, worship him. This is your king, pursue him. This is your king. Our aim is love. Love is the greatest command, God's kind of love. We represent the kingdom. We gain from the kingdom and are assets to the gain of others because we live by the kingdom and we do it all because this is our king and we love him. Fix your eyes on him and follow him and you will pursue godliness, which is gain, and you will flee from gain or more, which is loss. And as you do it, folks, remember, it's a fight. Fight the good fight. Stay the course, run the race, and be there for each other while you're doing it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your extraordinary love for us, for the extraordinary privilege that you've bothered in such detail to make your kingdom known and its ways, its truths, its philosophies, to empower us by your spirit, yourself, to live a life on this planet, to demonstrate all the things you're gonna call us into and then to invite us to be participants, not only in being recipients of your redemptive work, but to be participants in representing your kingdom, bringing glory to your name, making you known. And on top of all of that, you would be so gracious that the very nature of the things we pursue to represent your kingdom and make you known are the very things that will also benefit our very hearts and souls. God, what a thing it is that as we do things for you, we gain from them. And as we do things for ourselves, we lose from them. Empower us to be a people that fight the good fight, take hold of your kingdom and live in it and by it. And remember we're doing it for your glory so that we might be godly and content and in so doing both gain and be assets to those around us to gain. We love you, Jesus.